Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And if you love me, keep my commandments. And Father, we just ask now by the help of your Holy Spirit that you would work in us and among us and that you would cause us to be able to have an ear to hear what your Spirit would say to this part of your church as we open the Word of God this morning. Lord, we don't want to hear wiser, persuasive words of a man, but we want to experience that demonstration of your Spirit and power as he speaks to our hearts in personal and direct ways. So, Lord, give us understanding as your Spirit inspired this part of your Word. May we receive now and hear every intent and understanding behind why you recorded this for us. Speak to us, Lord. Apply your Word to our hearts, we ask. And we pray expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, as Christians, we talk a lot about following Jesus. We talk about serving the Lord. But I want to ask to sort of just consider in our text this morning, what does it really look like to follow Jesus? I think really in these verses, these statements from Jesus, we can see from our text that what following Jesus looks like particularly is three things. First of all, serving his purposes and doing his works. That's pretty evident by what Jesus says in verse 12, that we'll be serving his purposes and doing his works. Secondly, I think we can take note from verse 13 and 14 that if we're following Jesus, then we will be praying and depending upon him to exercise his power. And then finally, we'll see in Jesus' short statement in verse 15 that following Jesus also looks like demonstrating our love for him by our obedience towards him and what he asks of us in our lives. Now remember the background, John 14 through 17, we're in the last 24 hour of window of Jesus's life. And Jesus, remember, has just indicated to the disciples very clearly that he is going to be leaving them very shortly. And that he's going to be going away, of course we know from what he's told us, that he is going back to heaven once again from where he came, before he came to live as a man. But he's told them that where he's going, they cannot now come, which is sort of alarming them and making them feel a little uncomfortable. He's made clear that his followers, who've been with him for three years now, their way of living spiritually is soon going to be changing. And this is really, honestly, what we'll see next week going forward. Jesus' teaching in chapters 14, 15, and 16 predominantly is majorly about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And how now as Christians, we live in relationship to Jesus because of the new experience we have with the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. And there are some really great lessons ahead that we're going to be looking at as really we hear Jesus basically teach a series on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, we're going to have a teaching series on this or a preaching series on that. Well, Jesus, in verse 16 and onward now in these next few chapters, is going to give to us 
his teaching series on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. I think a lot of people are many times confused about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, Jesus is going to teach us about that in our section ahead. Now, in verse 11, before where we pick up this morning, he, Jesus also recently stated there his complete unity with the Father once again, and particularly how that had an effect in what took place in the works of his life. He said, verse 11, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me, he said, for the sake of the works themselves. Again, wanting to prove his divinity, Jesus there specifically was saying to us that his works in their kind and in their power indicated his divinity, indicated his direct connection and relationship with the Father. And because he was one in relationship with the Father, as the result, the works of God the Father were being reproduced in the very Son of God. Now, with that thought in mind of works... Jesus now continues in verse 12 showing us how are as his followers being in connection and direct relationship with him would cause the works of Jesus to be reproduced in his followers' lives. In the same way Jesus reproduced the Father's works, Jesus is saying, if you are in relationship with me, there should be a reproduction of my works happening in your lives. Look what he says in verse 12. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. So Jesus indicates here, as I said, first of all, those who are his followers will first of all be serving his purposes and doing his works on the earth. If we're a true follower of Jesus, we should be, we will be serving his purposes and actually doing his works while we live out our lives on this earth. Jesus says here, verse 12, look at the text. He says, be assured, he who believes in me. There's the qualifying statement. One who is a follower of Jesus, one who has faith in Jesus as Savior, is living for him as their Lord. This is the qualifier. And the reason I mention that it's the qualifier is because don't think what Jesus is saying here is only exclusively for the 12 disciples or the early apostles alone. He's saying here, whoever believes in me, he who believes in me, not just you 12 who are the early apostles, whoever believes in me, he says, can be assured to experience this pattern in their life. And what is it? Look at his words in verse 12. He says, the works that I do, he will do also. The believer. I think this here seems to be both a desire of Jesus for us as well as a promise of Jesus to us, that as his followers and servants representing him, we would reproduce the same works that Jesus himself did while he was living among us in his humanity. Now keep in mind, Jesus' works included many different things, both miraculous works, certainly healings and miracles, but also simply just good works. Acts tells us that Jesus was a man who went about doing good works, that is, righteous deeds and helpful acts among humanity minister to people. For example, Jesus' works included and can refer, I think here, to the righteous deeds and the helpful acts that Jesus did as he lived and ministered during his time on earth. Jesus, in love and compassion, went about doing many good and helpful 
and kind things to people who were among him. And not all of his works, however, were miraculous in nature. Jesus didn't just constantly do miracles 24-7. Many of the things Jesus did, which were good works, were the result of him just being full of love and having compassion for people and serving people and assisting people in helpful ways. For example, Jesus spoke spiritual truth like no one had ever spoke spiritual truth before. It seems the predominant emphasis of Jesus' ministry, if you truly study the four Gospels, that it was his custom to teach the people predominantly wherever he went. Jesus proclaimed things about the kingdom of God and taught people divine truths and explained to them the way of salvation. Jesus prayed for people. Jesus blessed children. Jesus at times we see, as we saw in John chapter 13, would even just do practical acts of humble servanthood. Remember, he washed his disciples' feet and just, again, practical, humble servanthood, a good work to just bless the life of someone else and make their life better. And all of these works were just as spiritually powerful and many of them changed people's lives. They transformed the hearts of people because of the power that they brought forth. Now, Jesus' work certainly as well also did and does include the miraculous works of Jesus. The times when the supernatural power of God did come forth from his life. When you study the Gospels, the four of them uh, together, it seems there are about 40 or so recorded miracles of Jesus that we have that he did. He opened the eyes of the blind. He healed paralyzed people and helped them to walk again. He opened the ears of the deaf. Jesus would calm storms on seas. I mean, he turned water to wine. He did miraculous things where the power of God supernaturally would come forth from his life. And the miraculous works of Jesus, you take note when they happen, they were never used to impress people. They were never used to try and demonstrate or show off his great power. They were always to help people, to make their life better, to bring some form of relief or benefit into their life. The powerful works of God assisted humanity in a loving way. And Jesus now says here, he truly does in verse 12, I say to you, he who believes in me, a follower, the works that I do, he will do also. So he's saying that as our, our, our leader did these things, our Lord did these things, he's saying as my followers, he said, you now wanting to serve my purposes will be doing and should be doing the same works. That is, as Christians and followers of Christ, we like Jesus should to some extent be proclaiming the way of salvation to people, being used of God to bring conversion of souls, teaching and counseling people with the word of God and teaching people and explaining divine truths that we understand, that we can share with them to help their soul via our words and even just the way our life, the way that we live out our lives. We, like Jesus, should be doing other good works like praying for people and blessing children and doing kind and helpful acts of practical servanthood to just minister to people, to help people out and to make their life better. And even at times, yes, being used perhaps even in certain times as a vessel of the Lord if he would see fit where the power of his spirit may work through us in a miraculous way. 
to bring healing into someone's life that we would pray for as we see Peter and Paul and those experienced even in the book of Acts as the power of the Lord at times, if God so chooses, can come through a human life, a miraculous way, a vessel of the Lord is used to even perform a healing as God accomplishes that by his power. And the reason for this, Jesus says, verse 12, why we will be doing the same works, Jesus says, verse 12, it's because I go to my father that as jesus ascends back to the right hand of the father in heaven back to his throne he will now send and this is what the next section of scripture is going to be about he will now send the spirit of god to come and be with us and jesus will now as he's still alive jesus will now live within his followers spiritually and his spirit and his life will work in us and through us. Galatians 2 verse 20 says it this way. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. It tells us in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4 how it's God's intention that the life of Jesus be manifested in our mortal flesh. That the believer now, once he embraces Christ, the very spirit of Christ, Christ in you, the Bible teaches, that Jesus by his spirit lives in us and now Jesus is living out his life through our lives. Jesus is still speaking, but now he's speaking through your mouth. Jesus still wants to touch people and serve people and do his works and he now does them through our body, through your body as his instrument on this earth. He wants to continue to do the same works as when he was here and this is why the Bible says we are, listen, the body of Christ. We are now the body of Christ on this earth. Jesus wants to use your life, your physical body to accomplish his works, to continue to work on this earth and minister. Listen to how Paul described it for his life in Romans 15. Paul says, For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedience and in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God. Paul describes, this was my experience as a Christian, Paul says. Christ was accomplishing things through me. He was using me, and through me, Christ was accomplishing things, he says, by the power of the Spirit of God. Great question this morning for you as a Christian. How much are you consciously trying to cooperate with this divine principle and desire of Jesus, listen, to let the Lord work through you, to let Jesus work through your life. That is part of the reason, actually, the Bible teaches why God saved us. It says in Ephesians 2.10 that we were saved, not by works, but for good works. Part of the reason you were saved, yes, is to give you the enjoyment of heaven and a relationship with God, but God also saved you so that he could use you as a vessel, that Jesus could perform good works through your life. So as a believer, my life, your body, your spirit, your mind, your mouth, your hands, your feet, these things are to be offered to the Lord as a vessel so that he can fulfill his purposes through us now that he can work through our lives. But take notice further before we depart, verse 12, 
of the staggering promise Jesus actually drops there in verse 12. He says, the works that I do, he will do also. But then look at this. And greater works than these he will do. So greater works than these? What does that actually indicate? Well, listen, in chapter 15, Jesus is going to say this. A servant is not greater than his master. So certainly when Jesus made this promise or statement, he was not indicated that we were going to be doing works in greater quality than he himself as the master, the Lord and the son of God actually did. That somehow we could become more spiritually influential or, or powerful and, and somehow the, the things that are recorded in the scripture, oh, well, that's nothing compared to what I'm going to do now. Pay ninety nine ninety nine. come to my miracle show. I can do things Jesus never did because I'm going to do greater works. That, well, listen, Jesus said a servant is not greater than his master. Jesus certainly here was not talking about doing works greater in quality. Jesus was talking about doing works in greater quantity. That is in the impact of the works, the extent of the works, the scope of the works to reach more because now the works of Jesus are happening through every follower of Jesus all over the globe. Not just in Israel, but all over the globe, the spirit of Jesus, Jesus himself is working through multitudes, millions of believers all over the globe simultaneously and therefore now greater works even than what happened in the ministry of Jesus can be happening today because the scope of his impact is much more increased and compounding. Again, Jesus says this promise of greater works is why? He says, because I'm going back to my father. Here, this explains the concept of what Jesus is saying in his reasoning. Again, while Jesus was alive on earth, he was living in a body of flesh. So he had confined himself to one human body as a man, which means Jesus could only be in one place at one time. He only ministered in a small area geographically in Israel and only for the space of about three years. And during that time frame, he was limited in the extent, the scope, the, the reach and the impact of his works. However, now because Jesus has gone back to the Father and now he lives within all of his followers all over the globe, by his spirit, the spirit of Christ within us, now the reach and the scope of Jesus' works can be even greater. He says even greater works are going to happen, so I'm going back to the Father, but that's actually a good thing Jesus is saying because now the kingdom will expand and it can grow and even greater amounts of work can be getting done because I'm not limited to one body, but now I can work through many, many people in the body of Christ all over the world and therefore in this way the disciples did and in this way we still to this day can do even greater works because Jesus has gone back to the Father and now he's living by his Spirit in his followers and he's still working but to a much greater scope to a much greater extent and impact and what an exciting thing to recognize that reality well perhaps next Jesus then gives the indication of how his works come to pass most effectively 
How do Jesus' works come to pass most effectively? Well, maybe that's what was on his mind and why he then says, verse 13, and whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now here I think you see a second indication of what a follower of Jesus looks like and that is this, that we will be praying and depending on him to exercise his power through us. This is what a follower of Jesus looks like, someone who's praying and depending upon Jesus to exercise his power through our lives. What a glorious promise we get here in verse 13 and 14 regarding to prayer. Again, prayer is just speaking to God, but Jesus repeats himself, no doubt, for emphasis in verse 13 and 14. I hope you pick up the repetition. Verse 13, he says, whatever you ask in my name, he says, that I will do it. Then again, verse 14, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, let me make a few simple observations here. First of all, Jesus indicates God actually desires, God actually wants for us to ask things of him. That's pretty evident in what Jesus is saying. He wouldn't say, if you ask, if he didn't want us to ask, if God didn't want us to ask. This, by simple observation, indicates that God actually wants us to ask things of him. He, he desires that we would dependently ask that things might be done on this earth for us and among us and through us. We're invited, we're in fact instructed by Jesus to ask in faith for things to happen among us here on this earth. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 7. He said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Now, I love that. Jesus asks you to ask. He says, I'm asking you. Would you please ask? I'm asking you, ask things. You don't ask enough. Ask, he says. For everyone who asks receives, he goes on. He who seeks finds. Him who knocks, it will be opened. If you then, he appeals to parental love, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Oftentimes, the great works of the Lord that happen on this planet and among God's people happen in direct correlation to guess what? Not God's people trying really hard, but God's people asking that the Lord would work asking that the Lord would do good works, that he would fulfill his plans and purposes. And it's through prayer that the works of God are birthed, that the works of God come forth in the midst of us asking and then God cooperatively answering our requests. Well, the second thing I think by sort of simple observation you can see here is this, is that not only does God want us to ask things of him, but Jesus, by his power and his authority, actually, listen, once to do things for us. Jesus wants to do things for us. We need to believe that and accept it in faith. We read two times that Jesus himself is the one who performs by his power the things that we ask. Again, notice the emphasis, the repetition. Here's his promise. Whatever you ask, two times he says, I will do it. 
You ask, and then Jesus says, and I'll do it. I'm the one that will do it when you ask. He himself, we can have confidence and assurance that Jesus wants to do things for us. He desires, it gives him pleasure to be able to act in response to our requests and perform his works by his power for us. It's actually the preference of Jesus for us to seek him and ask him to work on our behalf as his humble servants. Whether it's asking the Lord to give us power due to human weakness, Jesus says, great, I'll do it. You ask and I'll do it. I will give you power that you don't have on your own. I'll give you my power, whether it's to help us to be fruitful in whatever work we seek to do for the Lord. Lord, help me. Jesus delights to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves in our weakness. Hebrews 4 says it this way, seeing that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us therefore come boldly. The idea is confidently. Let us come confidently to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Where do we find mercy and grace to help in time of need? From Jesus. From Jesus who says, if you ask, I will do it. And when Jesus provides help for us in doing things, he says here in our verses, verse 13, that for him to do that, one of the reasons he does it is not just that he has pity for us alone, but one of the reasons he does it, he says, is in my doing this, my father is glorified. It glorifies my father when I do things for you. Why? Because when Jesus does things for us, he recognizes and he wants us to realize that honors the father because the lordship of his son is being exalted and acted upon. That we're saying, Jesus, you're the Lord. You're the one with power and authority. You need to do this for me. Lord, would you help me in this way? I'm weak and Lord, I can't be effective if you don't do for me what I cannot do in my own humanity. Now, as we look at these verses together and talk about them a little more in depth here, of course, uh, these verses and this promise from these statements of Jesus here have often been greatly, in my personal conviction, misunderstood and abused in some extents. Where people read the statements of Jesus here and they put sort of a selfish and somewhat, I think, naive emphasis upon certain words without understanding the greater context of Scripture as a whole. And so they read here about Jesus saying, whatever, whatever you ask, if you just ask in my name, I'll do it. And all of a sudden there starts to be this out of balance idea that develops somehow where people think that sort of just dropping the name of Jesus in prayer or tagging it at the end of prayer somehow becomes sort of like a spiritual trump card or the key to gaining free and instant access to absolutely whatever you want and whatever your heart desires or you think you're entitled to and whenever you want it from God. And the danger is what I've seen is then to an extreme, people even almost start to use Jesus' name in prayer almost in like a superstitious way. 
where they think again somehow there's something magical about just stating the name of Jesus and people may be therefore in prayer they start to get emotionally excited or louder and louder whenever they start saying the name of Jesus and they just start saying the name of Jesus and I've even you know again maybe people are, are praying and, and as they're praying they almost start like superstitiously chanting the name of Jesus 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 as if somehow that's like rubbing a genie on a bottle and we almost begin to develop this superstitious idea or even at times using Jesus' name in prayer in almost somewhat of a, a demanding tone where a person praying in Jesus' name, they start to get more passionate but then it almost becomes somewhat a little bit bossy and somewhat demanding somehow that they're going to, and in Jesus' name, just command that you do this and, and all of a sudden it's like we start to get demanding with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, I don't think we would do that to a human authority or to a human king where we would begin to get demanding or think somehow if we just say the name or chant it over and over. When Jesus gives this promise, I don't think that's what he meant by asking in my name, saying whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. It's not just a magical phrase we use as a key to unlock the treasures of miracle power or automatic provision for whatever we want or desire, nor is it a stamp that we put at the end of our prayers to just sort of selfishly obligate God because we asked in Jesus' name. So therefore, God's obligated now. He has to do what we said because we, we name-dropped. You know, we do that in, in, on earth. We, we, we understand the concept where well, you drop a name and all of a sudden you get tickets to the concert. You drop a name so then you get the promotion that somebody else couldn't get. And somehow we, again, take this misunderstood idea that, that we're name dropping somewhat with God because we dropped the name of Jesus. If somehow God is going, I mean, I really don't want to do that, but they dropped the name. I guess we're going to have to. I mean, they did drop the name, so I guess we have to give them the Mercedes. Or, you know, they did drop the name, so I guess we... Listen, I have a hard time believing, I really do, as if God would be that gullible and naive in regards to prayer. Or, worse, I have a hard time believing that God would be that much of a pushover. I would want God to be that kind of a pushover. No is an answer, and it's an adequate answer. <laughs> And at times it's an appropriate and a best answer and a good parent says no at times. So I think we need to be careful when this kind of misunderstood concept comes about. Let's talk about what does it really mean and what they would clearly understand, certainly culturally, when Jesus said, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. The idea of asking in the name of someone, the idea is Jesus saying, as my authorized representatives, as you ask things in accordance with my name, with who I am, in accordance with my will, a person's name represented all of who they were. And let me illustrate it perhaps this way. We could connect to it. If someone was a true servant or let's say a, a loyal ambassador and they go forth to conduct business on behalf of their king or their throne in their name, they might go to a town, let's say. And as they go to that town, perhaps they go to that town in the name of their king. And so they roll up into the town and a trumpet is blown. And they may say something in the name of King Anthony. Has a nice ring to it, doesn't it? In the name of King Anthony or in the name of my master Josephus, it is requested that you would blah, 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 so on and so forth. 
And again, the idea there, the understanding, they were asking and requesting something in accordance with the desires of the king that they submitted to and represented. They were asking something in accordance with the will of the wish and the plan of that throne of which they served. They were never asking something in accordance to what they wanted for themselves selfishly. So as they were asking something in the name of a king or so forth, it was never an abuse of their power for selfish purposes. They were asking what they were to see the will and the purpose of the king that they represented come to pass. And I'm asking this in accordance with, I know this is the will and the wish of the one whom I'm serving. And therefore, because this is in accordance with what they want and their will and their desire, I am now asking with their authority in representation of them to see their will come to pass, to see their wishes come to pass. And this is the idea spiritually when we pray in the name of Jesus. When we say at the end of our prayer in Jesus' name, again, it's not just a tag. The idea is that, Lord, I'm asking this and I believe this is in accordance with what your heart would be, with what your purposes may be. And that, Lord, it's your authority that can bring these things to pass. It indicates asking things that are in alignment with the will and the nature that's been revealed of who Jesus is and asking in accordance with his heart and his desires and what it means to follow him. I think a helpful verse to clarify that, 1 John 5, after speaking of a close relationship with Jesus where he dwells within our lives, it then says this regarding prayer. Now, this is the confidence we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that if he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we've asked of him. Again, because we're asking in accordance with his will. We're asking knowing I'm asking this, Lord, because I want your will and I want this to advance your purposes. Those kind of prayers, we can believe that Jesus says, if you ask like that in my name, I'll do it. I'll perform it. You can have confidence when you pray. Now, that understanding, see, when we grasp that, that sort of starts to weed out a little bit. Maybe some of the selfish prayers that we may use in a greedy way or where even under some banner of great faith. I have such great faith. I can just, you know, proclaim the name of Jesus and I'm going to name it and claim it and blab it and grab it. And if I just say his name, it belongs to me because I have such great faith. It kind of weeds that idea out a little bit. When we begin to understand that we can't demand Jesus to do something or force God's hand, but that we can pray passionately if we know, hey, my Lord would love to do this because I know this is his heart. I know this is in alignment with his will, so I can pray for this passionately in the name of Jesus because I understand the heart of Jesus. I understand who my king is and what he would want. And again, listen, I'm not trying to discourage praying passionately. I'm not asking or I'm saying that we shouldn't ask for great things. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have faith and ask the Lord to do mighty works and powerful acts. But we need to realize those things come to pass as we ask them in alignment with the will of God, in alignment with what Jesus would love to do. Again, the Bible says it's not God's will that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. The Bible says that God desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. 
So if I pray for somebody to get saved, I can pray in the name of Jesus and be very passionately about it, persuaded that the Lord wants to do this because this is his will. It's his will to save people. I know that's in accordance with his throne and with his will. And the things that I read of and learn about Jesus and see in his word, as I pray those things and ask those things, we can realize Jesus would love to do this. This is the heart of my king. This is in accordance with his throne. I'll tell you, as a great promise, we should look at verse 13 and 14 and remember the value and the benefit of prayer that Jesus says to you today. Verse 14, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. That's to encourage us to pray. The value of prayer, the benefit of prayer. What might this next year look like spiritually if we were to take Jesus at his word by faith and actually believe what he's saying and offering to us and act upon it through our commitment to and participation in prayer and seeking the Lord? What people might get saved? What lives might get changed and transformed? What power of God may begin to be unleashed and ministry may expand and and things may begin to happen that just would blow our minds because Jesus said, man, I I love to do that. I've been waiting for somebody to ask me to do that because that's in alignment with my heart. And if you ask, he says, You don't have to worry about it. I will do it. I love Acts chapter 4. It says this, that when they had prayed, the early disciples, the place where they were assembled together praying was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. What a beautiful description, I think, of perhaps maybe what the disciples remembered of Jesus' very promises there. Well, verse 15, Jesus then gives one more, I think, indication of what it looks like to be a follower of him. He makes it quite simple. He says, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. So here's a third way I think Jesus indicates we can see what a follower of him looks like. And that's this, that we will be demonstrating our love for him by obedient living. We'll be demonstrating our love for him by obedient living. Just as when a person falls in love, I've done it once. I watch other people around me do it. When a person falls in love, their heart automatically becomes fixated on wanting to do what makes the other person happy, on pleasing the person that they fell in love with. This is just a part of the love game. Such is the same when a genuine love happens in a person's heart towards Jesus. Jesus is just saying, in the same way, it's not religion, this is relationship. So when a person genuinely falls in love with me, they're going to naturally, just like two human beings who fall, they're going to naturally have a direct impact where it influences them to want to please him. If you love me, Jesus says, this will be the byproduct. I think some of the old statements are true, even in regards to spiritual life. Jesus is perhaps reminding us, talk is cheap. We say stuff like, don't say that you love me, show me that you love me. This is the kind of the idea that Jesus is getting to. From the Lord's own perspective, though love has an emotional component, certainly, it has an emotional component, true love for the Lord is not simply 
or listen, foremost, sentimental emotionalism. But Jesus indicates it is more about willful obedience to the commands of our Lord and a willingness to do what he wants and follow him. Jesus reveals here what truly proves or indicates our love for him. Do you really love the Lord? Oh, I love the Lord. Do I really love the Lord? How do I how can I tell? How can I really tell if I truly love the Lord? Well, Jesus says, let me indicate to you how you can truly tell. If you love me, the language infers there, you will keep my commands, Jesus says. This is an indicator, he says. This is the test, obeying him, what he asks and commands. That reveals our love for him. Look with me in this same chapter, if you would, down in verse 21. Jesus says, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. Look at verse 23. Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Look at verse 24. He who does not love me does not keep my words. You think Jesus is trying to get a point across? You can't be more direct and more clear than that. To the extent we continually and consistently obey Jesus, keep his commands to us, obey his voice and what he's saying to us, that demonstrates our measure of love for Jesus. And to the extent that we do not do that indicates that we do not really love him, but perhaps love ourselves or love some sin or something else more than Jesus. Again, we can think of this from a human level. If I told my wife, I love you, and told her I love you, but then I lived very selfishly towards her, and I didn't ever really take into consideration what her preferences were, or what pleased her, and I didn't ever really, in the way I related to her, you know, take into consideration what she cared about, and I just disregarded everything she cared about, and I just kind of selfishly did what I wanted and what pleased me rather than what pleased her, or worse, if I then started doing things that just hurt her and disgraced her and dishonored her, would you not look at me and say, dude, you are an utter hypocrite? Even if I said with tears, baby, but I love you. I love you, baby. You would say, you're an utter hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. You say it, but it doesn't show by the way that you live in a relationship to her. Now we laugh, but let's be honest. Think about how some people who say they love the Lord live in relationship to the Lord. Oh, I love the Lord. But yet they're doing things that clearly violate what Jesus has said. And they continue in a habit or a lifestyle or a pattern, disobeying the Lord, disregarding the word of God. Jesus is maybe speaking to them about something and they're just ignoring his voice or they're doing things that totally hurt the heart of the Lord, but they say they love the Lord. Jesus said, if you love me, That would translate into obedience. The revelation of love is demonstrated through obedience. Remember Jesus said this in Luke's gospel. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do the things that I say? 
the idea is as a contradiction. Again, be careful. Don't measure the validity of love in relationships humanly or certainly towards a Lord by just emotionalism alone. Spiritually speaking, it's not about how high you jump. It's how straight do you walk when you hit the ground. Nothing wrong with getting excited about the Lord. But you can go to a worship meeting and jump up and down and have tears running down your cheeks. And if you leave, oh, I love Jesus, love Jesus, then afterwards you're out in the parking lot and you're a selfish jerk and then you go home and live in your carnal ways again, don't say you love the Lord. You had a spiritual pep rally. But that's not loving the Lord. It's not how high you jump, it's how straight you walk when you hit the ground that you want to follow the way, the truth, and the life because love is displayed through sacrifice and servanthood which are a more accurate representation of genuine love. And I think Jesus here doesn't just say this reveals love, but let me say this. I think it also, here Jesus gives to us a direct way to practice and express our love for him. He tells us, this is my request. And I appreciate this because if we truly love the Lord, he says, look, I'm going I'm to tell you how you can show me that you love me. If you really love me, I'm going to tell you how. Really what Jesus does here, he says, it's not mysterious or hard to figure out my love language. Now, I've been married yesterday, was, was 22 years. It has taken me a lot of years of thorough study and deep paying attention and lots of efforts and learning to learn how to properly show my love towards my wife. And to understand deeper and more under, in clearer ways what manifests to her and clearly shows her what my love is for her to demonstrate it. Yet with Jesus, he says, my love language is really simple. Do you love me? He says, I'll make it very easy for you. Here's my love language, submission. Obedience to me, loyalty to me. If you truly love me, Jesus says, if you, if you do, here's how you can show me. Just keep my commands. If you obey me, you're going to be showing me your love. And that will demonstrate to me. So again, it means obeying what we read directly in Scripture that Jesus himself said. When we read statements and commands that Jesus made, if we obey those things, Jesus says, as you do that, thank you, you're showing me you love me. That really, oh, I can tell him you love me. You're listening to what you're doing, what my word says. As we obey the word of God as a whole, we show and express love to Jesus. When the Lord speaks something to our heart in a personal way, and if you're a Christian, you know that experience where the Lord just is speaking something. He's like, I, you need to apologize there. I'm not apologizing. You need to apologize there. I'm not apologizing. All right, Lord. Because I love you, I'm going to humble myself and go apologize. You need to go talk to the person. Oh, I don't want to talk to the person. You need to talk. I, I'm, a, I'm not talking to the people. That's weird. I want you to go tell them about that. That's why I'm not. All right, Lord. Because I love you more than I love my own image and feel. Lord, because I love you, I'll do it. And when he speaks to us in our hearts that our obedience to him, that shows him our love. One commentator said this. I think it's a great quote. He says, true obedience is not unwilling or dutiful conformity to an external standard, but rather it's joy-filled reaction to the initiative that God has taken in showing his love to us in Jesus. You know, in this week ahead, as we walk through this next week, let's look for ways as Christians to show our love for Jesus. When situations arise or a temptation occurs or an opportunity becomes available, that we would see those as an occasion 
to show our love for the Lord. That when a temptation to sin comes, I go, oh, it's so hard. I've got to resist temptation because it's just the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. But instead to say, Lord, I'm very tempted right now. I'm very tempted to sin in this way. But Lord, this is an opportunity to show you that I love you. And so, Lord, I'm going to resist this, not because it's the righteous thing to do. I'm going to resist this because I want to show you how much I love you. And Lord, it's hard, but I'm going to show you how much I love you. Or when a situation occurs and we have to choose to respond in the spirit or the flesh, Lord, I want to show you how much I love you. And that we would see these as occasions to show Jesus how much we love him, to bless his heart in that way. To send him our own little personal love note or hallmark card by just the way that we obey him and we do what we know would please him. And also to let onlookers look on and as they watch us to say, wow, she really loves the Lord. He really loves the Lord, that they could see that. As I look at this as well, it also reminds me of this too. One of the best ways to avoid disobeying Jesus, anybody like to disobey Jesus a little less this year? (laughs) One of the best ways to avoid disobeying Jesus is just fall in love with the Lord. Just fall in love with the Lord. Let's stand. Let's pray together.